Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Mayunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are at Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and turned his attention to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? (laughs) For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Father, I pray that you will help us to not see this as an ancient history, but as an immediate reality. I pray, Father, we would have the opportunity spiritually to realize what was going on, to see Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah as real people just like us, facing a a real challenge just like we do, although I don't know that I've ever faced one so great. May we, Father, understand their humanity, but also see their faith and learn from it and buy it. And I ask, Lord, that you will encourage your people today by your Holy Spirit. And teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. His name was Angelino Siciliano. He was born in Italy in 1892. At the age of 12, he moved to Brooklyn, New York. He changed his name to Charles at that time, and he became a leather worker. And he became interested in exercise and strength training at a very early age, particularly after being bullied. He went and joined the local YMCA, which I wouldn't recommend so much today, but back then it would work. And he began working out. Just kidding about the YMCA. During a visit to the Brooklyn Zoo, Charles Siciliano observed a tiger stretching. And in his memoirs, he would later write, How does a tiger keep in physical condition? You ever see a tiger raising barbells? 
he concluded that tigers and lions, among other animals in the animal kingdom, became strong by pitting muscle against muscle, and he began to apply this theory to his own training. In 1921, at a contest in Madison Square Garden, Charles Siciliano was dubbed the world's most most perfectly developed man. (laughs) A title I'm sure I would have gotten had I been there at that time. (laughs) Physical Culture Magazine dubbed him this, and in 1922, he began developing what would later be known as the dynamic tension method of bodybuilding. In many ways, he revolutionized physical fitness in America. It was then that Charles Siciliano changed his last name and he became Charles Atlas. You may recall that name. One of the things, however, Charles Atlas was best known for wasn't even his books or his workouts. It was his advertisements. If you were ever a comic book reader, back in about the mid-40s and all the way up truly to present day, there were ads in the comic books, comic ads. There were normally three, four, five cells long, a little miniature comic. You could see a drawing, of, it's kind of a famous drawing of Charles Atlas standing like this, and around him would, would be these, these comics. And the story went something like this. There was always a typical scenario, a, a cartoon scenario, that mimicked Atlas's own life. A skinny young man would be standing in the first frame, usually a, uh, accompanied by a young woman. And along would come a bully who would start to make fun of him and call him a 97-pound weakling. It's where that phrase began. 97-pound weakling. The bully would push him down. He'd fall to the ground. He'd say some more things. The girl would laugh, and she would leave on the arm of the bully. The skinny, scrawny little guy, the 97-pound weakling, would stand up and become very angry and immediately send away for Charles Atlas's training program. And in the next frame, he comes back buff and prepared. He goes to the scene of the crime. He beats up the bully... And the girl leaves on his arm to the onlooking amazement of people standing in the background. The 97-pound weakling becomes the admired strongman. Let me ask you this morning, do you think of yourself as more of a Charles Atlas or a 97-pound weakling? You know, I think in different aspects of our lives, we may see ourselves different ways. There are those who, who work out. Friends of mine, people that we see at the bridge who have a little more muscle, a little more strength. Maybe physically you feel pretty good about where you're at. You're a pretty buff dude or a well-toned dudette. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, however, tells us bodily discipline, discipline is only of a little profit. Which is why I don't personally work out. But godliness... <laughs> godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise of the present life and also for the life to come. Man, if you're going to work out, I encourage you to work out spiritually first. Because there are eternal consequences to that that are significant. Maybe intellectually you're a person to be reckoned with. You are a brainiac. You got it all together. My son Corey, who from time to time reminds me how much smarter than me he truly is. Not because he's arrogant, but just because he says, Dad, have you heard about such and such and such and such? He begins talking in about two minutes into it. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Maybe spiritually you think of yourself as a powerhouse of faith. 
And as you look around, you realize, boy, if this fellowship could just have half the faith I have, we would really go somewhere. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.5, In the last days some will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Power is an interesting concept, especially in the church today. People chase power. People want power. And I'm not talking about physical or political, but spiritual power. And we see it, it seems to be on the rise, a desire, a hunger for power. Power experiences. The power presence of the Holy Spirit. People want to want to see and know and, and, and have this sense that God has worked through them and there's, and there's power in the place. And there are those who are holding in these days to a form of godliness, although they have denied its true power. Because you see, there's a way to get to the power of God. There's a very specific prerequisite for power. A way to to know that you have the Spirit flowing through you. And to present yourself before the Father such that you receive His power. Now I think in reality for all of us, just as people, that at least in some area of our life we see ourselves as more of the 97 pound weakling than we do the great Charles Atlas of strength. We may not want anyone to know it and so we put on the mask of the facade but deep down we know, we recognize, we realize we don't have it all together. We don't have what it takes. We don't have the strength sometimes even to make it to the next day. There's a prerequisite for power and we see it in our text this morning and in the story before us. Look back at verse 1. Again, it says it came about after this that the sons of Moab, that's the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Mayunites, these three different nations gathered together and they came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Some reported, and they came and said to Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now to understand the context of things, it says it came about after this. Well, after this refers to the previous few chapters. In fact, if you really want to get the full context of this, you've got to go back to about chapter 15. And walk it through to see where Judah has been and where they are right now. And, and, and we're at the after this. For actually, if you want to get the full context, you really probably ought to go back to Genesis. <laughs> we don't have time to do that this morning. But after this refers to the great revival that's going on in Judah at this time. The previous chapters show this. That Asah, the king, brought the people. The Lord through Asah brought a great revival. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Then his son, Jehoshaphat, continues the revival, as we've seen. And then he makes some poor choices, some bad judgment. But he comes back, he learns from his mistakes. He humbles himself, he sends out throughout the land teaching priests and Levites. And they teach the people discernment. And once again, they are back on track. Revival is taking place, and Judah is in a very good place. Yet in spite of this... Even though spiritually they are climbing the mountain and moving toward the Lord in a good way, the attack comes. And the king is afraid. There is a threat now of annihilation and Jehoshaphat is frightened. And his fear is completely understandable and justifiable. If you were Jehoshaphat, if I was, and we were standing there in Jerusalem and we knew what kind of a multitude was coming at us, we too would be frightened. This is a massive, thunderous army. It's so big, in fact, that Scripture doesn't even bother to count it. 
Now we saw just in a recent chapter, the Ethiopian army came up against him and it was called an army of a million men. Well, this army, there's no number given. So we can safely assume it was even more than that. On the doorstep of Judah, ready to annihilate this people. Let me ask, what do you do when your heart is failing and when your fears are rising? When you feel insufficient to deal with or handle what is presented to you. When maybe things are rolling along great spiritually, you're closer to the Lord than you've ever been, and boom, the attack comes. Maybe it's a phone call from the doctor saying, it is cancer. Or maybe it's a a son or daughter who are rebelling against you. Maybe there's some other problem. Maybe you lose your job or you lose your home and you're saying, how is it possible? I was so close to the Lord. Everything was so good. And now all of a sudden, I am fearing for my life. What do you do when you feel insufficient to face the challenges? This is, this is a big deal, especially for men. Especially for us guys. No offense, women, but we truly do not want to be seen as weak. We want to be seen as having it together, as being strong. We can handle the problems. We can fix the issues. We can deal with our lives. I've got news for you, brothers. We are weak. And they know it. We think maybe we've got our wives and the women in our lives fooled, but they know. That's why they give you that look every now and then. But there's a great value in weakness. A tremendous value in weakness. In fact, weakness is the prerequisite for power. Weakness is the prerequisite for power. You want power in the Lord? You want power in your life? It starts in the place of weakness. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I've gathered all my intellect and my physical prowess and my spiritual strength, then the Lord says, wow, Paul, I can use you. No, it's at the bottom of the barrel. It's when I don't think I have an ounce of energy to give. That is when the Lord says, all right, we can go somewhere. When I am weak then I am strong. I've heard that before, Pastor Rick, but how does that work out really? I mean, it sounds nice biblically, spiritually, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Oh, that's a humble thing to say, but how does that work in practical life? How is God's power perfected in my weakness? Watch in our story. Look at what Jehoshaphat does. It says he was afraid in verse 3, and he turned his attention to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, which, by the way, would make them weaker. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Three times in two verses. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. Facing impossible odds. Jehoshaphat gathers the people, they fast, they seek the Lord, and look down in verse 13. We're told all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. What does that mean? It means the men didn't know what to do. It means the men were standing there, their wives and kids and babies were all standing there together. Wives, children, babies looking at dad, and dad standing there because he had no solution. Nowhere to turn, nowhere to run. Get that picture. This is a people who have no idea what to do. You've heard the phrase, don't just stand there, do something. Well, there's a better phrase in the Lord, and it's don't just do something. Stand there. 
Don't just do something. In fact, this is the first great value in recognizing our weakness. Number one, if you want to jot these things down or just follow this, weakness brings me to a standstill. Weakness brings me to to a standstill. Notice the difference between Judah standing there and Jehoshaphat's praying over them and the people fasting. Notice the difference between that and the enemy. Back in verse 2, the Bible describes these attackers as a great multitude. This phrase, great multitude, Rab Hamam, in verse 12, 15, and 24 is repeated. So four times in this chapter we see the phrase come up again. A great multitude. And it just doesn't mean a quantity of size. It means a quantity of sound. It is both size and sound. It describes a massive, clamorous, tumultuous, turbulent host. Raging and seething on the border of Judah. Ready to attack a loud, frightening, clamoring army. And I point that out just to say the devil's psychological warfare is always more about quantity than it is quality. What do you mean by that? I mean he uses and loves to employ the tactics of size and sound. Big problems, lots of noise. Bulk and blare. This is what the devil is about. Truly, most of the attacks of the enemy against you and against me substantively are not that powerful. If we truly look back, settle in and see what he's doing. But he loves to use size and sound. Have you noticed when you face big problems, they tend to be accompanied by noise? What happens at home, husbands and wives, when you're struggling financially? You shout and argue. We don't in my house, but I'm sure you do in yours. But how often does sound accompany problems? Noise and clamor. You know why? It keeps us from listening. And Satan knows if he can jam your radar... He can keep you from hearing what it is the Lord is trying to say. It is hard to hear God in clamor. And so, don't just do something. Stand there. Stand there. Weakness brings me to a stand still. That's why the Lord says, hey, be quiet. Psalm 46.10 Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Losing your health? The God of Jacob is your stronghold. Losing material possessions? The God of Jacob is your stronghold. Losing faith in a marriage? The God of Jacob is your stronghold. Stand still. Be quiet. Listen to the Lord. The men of Judah are standing there. They're seeking the Lord. They're fasting. And the king does something absolutely amazing to me. The king, great Jehoshaphat, admits before all the people that he is clueless and he is powerless. Look at verse 6. He begins praying, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. But did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it into the descendants of Abraham your friend forever? And they've lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And we'll cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, 
sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming out, by, by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. Now, notice something here. When Jehoshaphat is praying this, notice his grasp of history. Why? Does he have such a grasp of history? Even quoting to an extent some of the prayers that Solomon offered. And going back and saying when the people came into this land, these three people groups of Moab and Ammon and Mount Seir, we didn't attack them. You you said, turn aside, let them be. And so we turned aside and let them be. How does Jehoshaphat know all this? He's a king. So, So what was the king supposed to do when he first came to his throne? To take a scroll of the law the Torah, Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, and copy it down. Jehoshaphat knew his history. He had learned from his history. And so now he's before the Lord and saying, wait a minute, aren't you the same God who did all those fantastic things? Now in this place, what he does that's surprising, because at that moment, at this moment, I, I would... I'd say all that. I, I think I, I could pray that prayer. But then at the end of it, I'd probably say something like, And God, I'm your man. Strengthen me, empower me to do what we need to do. These people, they need to know I'm strong. Not Jehoshaphat. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We are powerless and we are clueless. Careful, Jehoshaphat. The people will think you don't have a clue how to lead. The people are going to lose confidence in your leadership ability. Gang, the people already know Jehoshaphat doesn't know what to do. The truth is, and it's funny to me, that leaders will get up there, and I've seen it happen with every president we've ever had, but leaders will stand up and they'll use great words and eloquence to try and make it sound like they know what they're doing, but behind the scenes, most of us know they really don't know what they're doing. In many cases, we know that speech was written for them. We understand that, that those advisors are really what's driving this. Looking back even at the, at the Bush administration, do you realize that most of the policies were set by Cheney in the first four years? And Bush acknowledged that. He was learning the process. Most of us realize that the leader who sits or stands before us doesn't have it all together. Someone (laughs) shared something with me a little while ago. Rick, I heard something that was said about you. Oh, really? It's a shock. Yeah, someone said, well, Rick doesn't know everything. Do you know how offended I was by that? <laughs> of course I don't know everything. For crying out loud, that's why we're in the Word of God. No, I don't know everything. I've told you before, as pastors go, I'm one of the more clueless ones, so put that in your Bible and read it. Anyway, <laughs> this great king says before the whole people, I am powerless and I'm clueless. I don't know what to do and I don't have the strength to do it even if I knew. And that admission is wonderful because, again, Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We all have the same masks of false power hanging in our closets, don't we? We all have the outfits. We all have the things that at certain times in our lives we've put on to make people think we knew more than we knew. We don't. We may know some things. But gang, what's great about this moment is Jehoshaphat 
takes this, this weakness to a good place. The second thing to note, not only does weakness bring me to a standstill, weakness allows the demonstration of God's power. Because I get out of the way. Weakness allows the demonstration of His power. The Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read to you out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 just for a moment here. But the Apostle Paul, he came to Corinth. This... this uh, transport town a lot of business and commerce came through Corinth it was a harbor town seaside town and he came there on the heels of a visit to Athens, Greece the book of Acts tells us about this in Acts chapter 17 Paul goes to Greece he goes to Athens the seat of learning and philosophy and and great conversation and thinking in the world at the time and when Paul goes there well he, he makes a little mistake I think He doesn't have the greatest evangelical success in Athens. He doesn't have a a large throng of believers who come out of Athens following the teachings of Paul and, and believing in Jesus. When he arrives in Corinth, he determines instead to come with an admission of powerlessness. Watch the difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God which is exactly what he did in Athens. Read it again, Acts chapter 17. He begins speaking like a philosopher. He begins using the language of the people. Now, in one case, it's, it's kind of a, a study in relevance, a study of trying to reach the people where they're at. But in the other case, the success is just not there. And so he comes to Corinth and he says in verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm not going to speak the language of philosophy. I'm not going to use the great wisdom or learning of man. I'm just going to tell you about Jesus, which is a great approach evangelically. Don't try to outthink the person you're trying to bring Jesus to. Just tell them about Jesus. Well, what about evolution? I don't know a whole lot about that, but I can tell you about Jesus. What about the things we see going on in the world? Pain and hardship. Well, I'm not real well versed, but I can tell you about Jesus. Paul says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. But watch this, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Weakness allows the demonstration of God's power. And the demonstration of power there was of the Spirit of God, not of the Apostle Paul. He makes it very clear so that no one could possibly confuse where the power was coming from. His speech wasn't that great. He was in fear and trembling. He was, was, you know, he was a weak vessel. But Paul says, you all know, you saw the demonstration of God's power. With real-time explanation, Paul evidences here the clear and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. End of this verse, Zechariah 4.6 Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Back in 2 Chronicles, so the people are standing still and the king admits his weakness because weakness allows the demonstration of God's power. And verse 14 going on says, Then, in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Yahatziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Yehiel, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. Just so you know who this guy was. (laughs) Verse 15, 
And Yahaziel, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him and he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. Great line to underline. Get ready here. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. It's one of the best phrases to repeat when you face impossible situations in your life. The battle's not yours, but the Lord's. Number three, weakness. Not only does it bring me to a standstill and allow the demonstration of God's power, but weakness leads me to dependency. Another funny thing I heard. I was asking our elders this last, last Tuesday night. What, what are you hearing? What's, what's going on? What are people saying? And what do we need to be praying about? And, and one of them brought up, well, you know, there was a kind of a concern about you, someone said, what do we do now that we have a pastor with failing health? (laughs) Weakness leads me to dependency. And they were speaking about my recent little heart thing. Well, let me just let you know that I had the echocardiogram. We've had the follow-up. The echocardiogram shows a perfectly healthy heart. My cholesterol is 124. My arteries are wide open. And I'm feeling great. And I have no idea why that thing happened. So you don't have a pastor with failing health. But what if you did? What do you think? God can't handle that? I could be in perfect health and walk out the door and get run over by Bill Greenlaw today. (laughs) Because he's the one who's been saying all this stuff about me. No, just kidding. What does it matter how strong I am? You don't think God has this fellowship in His hand? Hey, weakness leads us to dependency not on our pastor, but on the Lord. I hope you never give a second thought to what happens to the bridge if something happens to Rick. I don't think about that. Well, what will happen to our fellowship? I would assume you'd go on trusting the Lord and He would provide. Just like He always has. Weakness leads to dependency. I need need to get this point a little further home. Listen, Alistair Begg, one of my favorite pastors, you can pick him up on the radio from time to time, great, great Bible teacher, but he said the following, Why is it that some of us limp through life? Why is it that some of us have a thorn in the flesh? Why is it that there is an anxiety of heart and spirit? Why is it that there is restlessness? Why is it that that sense of quiet desperation? It is so that we might know that we are absolutely powerless. Why do some, I might add, struggle with depression? Why do some have physical ailments that just don't seem to leave them alone? It is so that we might know that we are powerless. We are not people of greatness. We are people in need. And weakness leads us to that place where once again we depend on the Lord and not on ourselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. And with insults and distresses and persecutions and with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. But listen, in the church, here's the temptation. 
Here's what we do. We go buy a book, or we download a message, or we visit a church that tells me how I may not be powerless. How truly I am more powerful than I thought I was. And for a brief time, I am deluded into thinking, now I can handle this life. Do you know how dangerous that is in the spiritual realm? Now I've got the power to deal with my problems. And it is delusional thinking because your problems will get bigger. That the Lord will show you once again that the power is not yours, but His alone. It is in my powerlessness that I seek the Lord. Look at what the people do. They're having great revival. Everything's going really well. But what is it that causes them to gather again in Jerusalem and seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord? It's when they are brought to their knees before powerlessness again. When they realize we don't have the strength. It's perfect timing on the Lord's part. Hitting them in the midst of revival when they might start to think something of themselves that they shouldn't. And the Lord brings these armies around them and their powerlessness is obvious and they are dependent on the Lord again. Jehoshaphat says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. That's where God wants us. That's where the Spirit wants us to live. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And for all we talk about this morning, gang, I want to make you a guarantee, my personal pastoral promise. You will leave here as weak as you were when you came in. You're not going to get stronger. You will possibly leave here weaker because you'll be aware of your weakness. And that's a good thing because when you walk out the door, if you are more dependent on the Father than when you came in, hallelujah, that's where He wants us. Because that's where His power can begin to be demonstrated in our lives. I realize there are some who would find this offensive. Some in in the spiritual realm, some in the Christian life would say, no, 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 we are supposed to be a power, but didn't Jesus say, you will do more things than these? You'll do greater miracles? Yeah, He did. The more we rely on Him. We've got to remember, gang, it is still not my power. It is still not your power. Even to the effecting of miracles, it is not your power or mine. And until we recognize that the power is completely and absolutely and wholly His, that same power will not be perfected in our weakness. So, take this verse home with you. The battle is not yours. It is the Lord's. Our challenge is with the county. Guess what? It's not our challenge. It's the Lord's. Our struggling forward as a fellowship to eventually build a building, this is not our struggle. This is not our battle. This is not our problem. It is the Lord's. The problem you're facing physically in your life, it's not your battle. It's the Lord's. If you will hand it over to Him and trust Him. By the way, I think I skipped something here. Read a bit further. Verse uh, 16. Watch this. Still speaking by the Spirit of the Lord, Yehaziel, in verse 16, says, Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Yeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, and I love this, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. So... When I said before, don't just do something, stand there, the Lord says, and I want you to continue standing there to watch what I'm going to do. You come to a standstill in your weakness, you stay right there in that place and watch me work. 
Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites of the sons of the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Look at how the people respond. The Spirit of the Lord speaks, and it is obvious. They all know, and I don't know if it's because Yahatziel was himself a little 97-pound weakling, but the people knew God was speaking, and they are so thrilled, they hit their knees. That's the fourth, fourth thing to note. Weakness takes me to my knees in worship. When I am weak, then He is strong. The more I recognize my weakness, the more I am led to worship Him. And what's great about this, they fall down in worship in verse 18. In verse 19, the Levites grab their guitars and their drums and they begin to worship too. The whole worship band is going. It turns into a beautiful celebration of worship. Note this, before the Lord showed them a single ounce of power. Before God did anything, the people are worshiping. It's wonderful. They don't know the outcome. They just know the promise. But they believe the promise, and because they believe it, they are led immediately into worship. Verse 20, they rose early in the morning, and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood, and he said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in His prophets, and you will succeed. Note what he says there. Put your trust in the Lord and you will be established. Put your trust in His prophets and you will succeed. What's he saying? Trust the nature, the character of God. And trust His Word. Trust His Word. He's not saying trust the men who are prophets. Trust the prophets. Trust what has been told you. Trust the promises. Trust the Word of the Lord. If you trust His nature, gang, you will be established. If you trust His Word, you will succeed. Verse 21. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised Him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is everlasting. Okay, here's the battle plan, Judah. Worship team goes first. Excuse me? I mean, can you imagine being on the praise team at that time? You're over there tuning your guitar to follow the army into this great victory. Worship team first. You want us to... You realize that I I can swing my guitar with the best of them, but it is no sword. (laughs) What are you talking about? Can you even imagine our forces in Afghanistan back when they prepared to storm Kabul and the commanding officer standing up and shouting, Send in the band! Let's have a parade! Uh, Sir, we haven't even taken the city yet. No, that's no problem. Send in the worship team ahead of time. Do you see what this is? I call it preemptive praise. It's preemptive praise, and it is the best time to worship God. Not after He has shown Himself to you, not after He has rescued you, but before. Worship Him before you have the result of what He's going to do. Why would I do that? Because worship expands faith. And faith, faith stirs up the Lord. Did you know that faith actually has causes an emotional response in our God and Father? Back in Matthew chapter eight, remember the Roman centurion? He comes up to Jesus and he says, "I got a servant back home who's 
who's sick and ailing, and, and I was just wondering if you'd be willing to heal him. And Jesus said, oh yeah, let's go. And the centurion says, no, 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 I, I, I don't, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Um, but I understand how the chain of command works, and if you will just command it, it'll happen. And Jesus, we're told in Matthew 8.10, 8, 10, when He heard this, He marveled. The centurion says this, and Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, goes, Wow! That's awesome! He marvels and He says to the people around Him, Truly I say to you, I haven't found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Faith excites God. Faith stirs up the Father. Look at verse 22. When they began singing and praising... The Lord set ambushes against the son of Ammon. Why when? Well, the Lord's now seeing His people come down the mountain. The worship team first. The worship is going up. The praise is, is, is being heard. And the Lord goes, Alright, my people, believe me. They believe me. And He set ambushes against the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah. So they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy one another. It's one of the greatest battle plans in all of history. The Judah didn't even have to fight. They didn't have to lift one bow, one sword. They just praised. And as they worshipped the Lord, He routed the enemy. And you see how they did it. These three nations started fighting each other. And they wiped each other out. So that by the time Judah comes up over the hill, well, we'll get there. The enemy gang got confused at the worship. And I think there's something spiritual to note there. Worship confuses the enemy. Praise is a problem for him who sets himself against God. This enemy ended up turning on each other in a massive self-slaughter. Now, I don't know what they were thinking, but as they're lined up ready to take out Judah and they hear this worship and praise coming up over the hill, I wonder if they went, why are they praising? Don't they know we're here to wipe them out? They must know something we don't know. Maybe they have other nations aligned with them. Maybe when they come over the hill, we're dead. And they begin arguing, and I'm just kind of surmising here, but they begin arguing among each other, and the next thing, someone's sword goes out, Someone falls dead and it turns into this massive brawl. The enemy fighting the enemy. They must know something we don't know. Maybe Mount Seir is actually on their side. Oh, maybe you're on their side. Maybe I'm on their side. Ah, maybe it just falls apart. I need to say something seriously here. One of the greatest tragedies in Christian life today is one of the first things that we tend to leave out or skip out on when we've had a particularly tough day or week or season is the very thing we need most, worship. Honey, I've had a long day today. I'm not really up to heading over to the barn tonight. Boy, you know, it's been a busy week. Why don't we just sleep in this morning? Guess what? Sunday morning and Wednesday night, we're going to continue worshiping and praising and being in the Word together whether you show up or not. And so it, it, it's one way or the other. This is, we're going to have a good time here. But if you've had a hard day or a hard week or a hard season, you need worship. 
You need to settle yourself before the Lord and see once again that He is King. That He is capable of handling what you are not. And we deny ourselves that great issue here. It lifts the heart. And worship stirs up the Lord in your life. And worship confuses the enemy. But before that happens, my weakness has to bring me to my knees. That I truly want to desire to worship God who has the strength that I so greatly lack. Verse 24, When Judah came to look out to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, there it is again, the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground and no one had escaped. Now I want you to think about that picture. As they come over the crest of the hill to the lookout and they look down and hundreds of thousands, over a million bodies lying dead in the wilderness. There is a slight shift in verse 24 relating to this multitude. Verses 2 and 12 and 15 call the multitude the great multitude, the Rav Hamon, referring to the deafening noise of this mighty foe. Well now there's just a multitude because they are silent. There's no more clamoring. There's no more clashing of steel. They are silent corpses strewn across across the landscape of the wilderness of Jeruel. One day earlier, one day earlier it looked as though Judah would be decimated and now they are preserved. And I point that out to say in your life and in mine, from one day to the next, God can do such a mighty work that what looks like absolute tragedy on one day may very well the next day be completely averted. We get all wrapped up in ourselves and in our fear and in our worries and we let it start to take over and we say, oh no, we can't. How do we? What's going to... And the Lord's like, if you will stand still, if you will worship, if you will trust My power in your weakness, you don't even know what's about to happen. Praise God at those times when you don't know what is going to happen. One day earlier it looked like they would lose everything and now all of a sudden God provides an incredible provision. Verse 25. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things which they took for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Other translations indicate that they might not even have been able to take all the spoil there was so much. But for three days, they're out there just collecting the leftovers, the spoil of the warfare in terms of three things that are mentioned, goods, garments, and valuable things. Number five in our listing here, gang, weakness reveals the hand of providence. Which I think is especially significant in our situation in America today in this time of recession. Weakness reveals the hand of providence. Psalm 34 verse 10 tells us, They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Whoa. Yeah, but I'm in want of lots of good things. Let me read that again. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Have you sought the Lord? 
I was studying for this and I was reminded of something. After being in the hospital, we've got some medical bills that have come in that I didn't really plan for and don't really appreciate. And I paused and I thought about this and, and, I, and I, I even said to myself out loud in my office, you know, Rick, you, you preached about this, you better do it. And so I pulled the medical bills that I had stashed behind the bills so I didn't have to look at them. I pulled them out, I laid them out on my desk and I put my hands on them and I just said, Lord, I need the hand of providence. I, I need you to help me with this. I need you to... And I'll tell you what, a check hasn't come from heaven quite yet, but immediately my stress and my concern and my worry was gone. Seek the Lord and you shall not be in want of any good thing. Have you actually spread out the bills and prayed over them? Have you laid hands on your children and prayed for them? Have you taken whatever your need or your fear or your concern, have you just taken it before the Lord and laid it out and said, Lord, I'm powerless and I'm clueless here. I'm seeking you. My friends, this is not theoretical theology. This is not the stuff of, oh, that sounds nice. Oh, isn't that just a nice idea? This is real life. If you will seek the Lord with whatever your situation, in whatever your weakness, if you will seek the Lord, the biblical promise is you shall not want. He's going to meet your need. After all, the Lord is by nature a provider. That's one of His names. The Lord my provider. Yahweh Yaira. The Lord is my provider. You know when we first heard that was back in Genesis 22. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac as they went up the mountain? And Abraham was about to sacrifice his son. They walk up the mountain together and Isaac looks around and goes, "Uh, Dad, I see we have wood for the fire, but where's the lamb for the offering? Abraham, knowing what he was called to do, with heavy heart, no doubt, said, the Lord will provide. Yahweh, Yireh. The Lord will provide it. And wonderfully, after saying Abraham's hand from killing his son, the Lord does provide. He looks and there's a ram caught in the thicket that they used then for the sacrifice. And Genesis 24.14 tells us that Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. That was on Mount Moriah. And guess what? The Lord not only provided for Abraham and Isaac a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, He provided for you and for me a sacrifice on Mount Moriah in the person of Jesus on the cross. Same place. The Lord will provide. Now I mention Abraham and Isaac not to go back in history even more, but simply to say, check it out, the hand of providence was not theoretical or theological to Abraham. It was real life. The Lord will provide. It's the only way we're going to get through this night, Isaac. Somehow, the Lord will provide. And He did. Listen, especially men. If the Lord is my provider, guess what? You are not. Well, I've got to provide for my family. No, you don't. No, you've got to trust the Lord to provide for your family. He is the provider, not you. Matthew 7.11, Jesus said, If you, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? You know what else He gives to those who ask? His Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. And by the way, speaking of goods and and garments here and valuable things, 
Isaiah 61 verse 10 tells us He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. You know, once you realize that fact, who cares about the rest of it? Who cares if you're wearing designer clothes or not? I'm clothed with the robe of, of, of righteousness, man. Which is a lot cooler than American Eagle. I've got garments of salvation, which blows anything you can pick up on Nordstrom's rack out of the water. Verse 26. Come down to the end of this great story. Then on the fourth day, as they assembled in the valley, or they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore they have named that place the valley of Barakah until now. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, that is the temple. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the land, and they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And so the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. I just love this. They returned to the same place where they prayed in weakness and powerlessness. Now they come back in praise, for they had seen the providence of the Lord. But before they do, before they do, they go to a valley right there near Tekoa called Barakah. The Valley of Barakah. It means blessing. And right there, there is a three to four acre valley on the road from Hebron to Jerusalem. Again, near Tekoa, which today is called the Wadi Barakut, which is the name, the word, Barakah. It's still called Barakah to this very day, the Valley of Blessing. Gang weakness. It reveals, and I don't think I've mentioned this, but it reveals the hand of providence. Weakness, number six and final one to note here. Weakness invites me to the valley of blessing. It invites me to the valley of blessing. In just four days, Judah goes from bad news to blessing. Jehoshaphat goes from being a 97-pound weakling to being Charles Atlas with the Lord's power in him. And it all started when they stood in their weakness before the Lord. And they were led to a deeper dependency and they fell on their knees to worship and the worship team then took the lead and they stood and they saw the demonstration of the Spirit and of power and the Lord stretched out His hand of blessing and the summation of all things here is Barakah, blessing. But I just want to point out one last thing and note this. They didn't come to the Valley of Blessing to be blessed. What does it say back in verse 26? They have named that place the Valley of Barakah until that day. Why? For there they blessed the Lord. The Valley of Blessing was not about the blessing of Judah. It was about the blessing of the Lord. Why? Because Jehoshaphat and Judah learned firsthand, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a wonderful story, but I hope it's more than a story for you. It is in our weakness that God's strength is perfected. You know what Jesus said? John 15.5 He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's pretty clear. You can try. Christians throughout the ages have tried. Non-believers throughout history have tried. But Jesus says, apart from me, You can do nothing. Paul said, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
And in Hebrews 4.15, we're told we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, I invite you to pray. To say these simple words, I am powerless and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Let's bow together. Father, we are powerless and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Because all of the strength, all of the power, all of the splendor, Father, it is yours. Lord Jesus, it is in you. And without you, apart from you, we can't do anything. We cannot achieve. We cannot accomplish. We are fooling ourselves. We are a weak people before you who desire your strength and power. And so, Lord, we determine, as Paul said, to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. We determine to stand on your word and your character, your promises. We determine, Father, to look to you to cry out to You to come before You, believing You for Your power and Your might. In Jesus' name, Amen.